Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. I record today's opening remarks to the sounds of my almost five-year-old son's giggles as he plays with his grandparents, my parents, in the front yard of my childhood home in Abilene, Texas. They're playing a game engaged in delight and playfulness and joy, which bring me the same. Offering these opening remarks to the sounds of play feels appropriate given today's conversation with Amos DeSasa, senior pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Dallas, Texas. Our conversation recorded at the end of June is deep and wide, intense and honest, vulnerable, and at times terrifying, in the sense that much of what we discuss cuts to the core, inviting deep introspection and authenticity. Re-listening to this episode had me sighing deeply and reminded me of the importance of pace set by Amos himself and his practice of pausing before answering, inviting me and all of us to breathe. I am reminded that to listen is often a practice in taking a beat, allowing myself to become comfortable with silence. Amos graciously offers that to me and to us in this conversation and I am deeply grateful. As a young child, Amos, his father, and his mother immigrated from Ethiopia to South Carolina. Amos earned a Bachelor of Arts from Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina in 2001, and a Master of Divinity from Wake Forest University School of Divinity in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 2006. Known for his compelling and challenging sermons, Amos is a frequent preacher and lecturer at national gatherings, including worship and music and youth conferences at Montreat, Next Church, and the Distinguished Pace Warren Lecture Series in Lexington, Kentucky. Amos is a trustee of Louisville Seminary and served on its presidential search committee. He has written for Presbyterian Outlook and is a contributing author to Feasting on the Gospels. Featured on Day One, a national ecumenical radio program and podcast, he currently serves on its advisory board. His involvement in social justice ministry began in 2001 with his work with former street children through the Hope Unlimited for Children in Brazil. A tireless advocate for those on the margins of society, Amos helped start Foot Care Ministry, the Light the Way Coalition of Churches, and Transitions, all organizations serving the homeless in South Carolina. Amos and his wife Sarah are the parents of their 10-year-old son Abraham and 8-year-old daughter Shepherd. As you listen today, you may want to grab a cup of tea or a mug of coffee or a glass of water and get comfortable in your favorite listening spot. Settle in and settle down. As I've heard Amos say of conversations he's holding among his congregation right now, we aim to have healthy ones, not perfect ones. This feels like one of those conversations. Healthy, 
whole, honest, true. Listen on, beloveds. And as you listen, breathe, expand, pause, grow, learn, transform. Well, Amos, welcome to the Academy podcast. We're so glad that you're here. And of course, I've shared a lot about you in the introduction of your bio and all that. But I love to begin asking folks sort of about their spiritual landscape of their lives, the geography, and what and who do you come from? I'll start with the second question. Uh, my parents' names are German and Nagatwa de Sasa. Uh, we are from uh, the westernmost region of Ethiopia. Um, we are Oromo people. Uh, that's our tribe. So largest tribe in, um, in Ethiopia, but we're from the Walega province, um, coffee growing region of, of Ethiopia. Um, specifically we're from the highlands. So, um, we, we were all born at, at higher alt- altitudes. Um, it, it's rainy half the year there, and then it's it's dry the other half. So we have two seasons, rainy and dry seasons. Um, we immigrated here uh, in 1983. Uh, I was three and a half years old. My, uh, my mother was probably six months pregnant with my younger brother, Raji. Um, we came here um, to... Uh, uh, my father came here to get his PhD from uh, University of South Carolina, but we were really just escaping the turmoil that was in Ethiopia at the time. So the Marxists had recently taken over uh, the Red Terror, uh, extermination really of of, um, of uh, political uh, dissidents internally in the country, um, especially those that were educated in the West and um yeah, it was it was a hard time there, uh, and um, so it was necessary for us really to to get out, and um, we we did. Um, not everybody was able uh, to leave. We we were. My father was raised by Presbyterian missionaries there in Ethiopia, so for me, he had um, some connections through through those relationships, and um, so my grandfather adopted grandfather was able to connect him with someone at the university who um, assisted him in securing this, you know, prized possession, which was a letter saying, you know, an invitation to come and study. This is what you use to get through all the immigration um, checkpoints. You just show them and say, yeah, I have a purpose in being here. You know, it was like you would have a visa, but you also needed more than a visa at the time. So, it also helped us get out of Ethiopia, which was very difficult leaving, you know. Anyway, so yeah, that's, um, I mean, I'm here now as a Presbyterian pastor, uh, but I guess our family's journey within this denomination, this particular flavor of um, of Christianity um, started 19, probably mid-1950s was when we were first introduced to um, um to the Presbyterian church. So, um, yeah, here, all these years later in a, 
So you went to South Carolina and you went to, spent mm-hmm. the majority of your life there, right? I did. And then I grew up. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, go grew up in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my father was a college professor there. I mean, university professor at, at USC and then you know, spent a little bit of time in rural South Carolina when he, um, he moved, we moved there to Lawrence, which is a really small town um, in South Carolina. And he was a professor at um, Presbyterian College. So ended up going to school there as well, uh, which was good because I met my wife there, met Sarah. And um, and then left there, went and spent a little bit of time in Brazil, which it's not that much time, you know. So it was only six months, but it was very formative for me. Um, and uh, worked with um, uh, street children, former street kids um, in a transitional home. Um, and really, I think while I was there, um, determined, like, I didn't know what it looked like. I don't, you know, I was just coming out of college. I was like, <laughs> you don't really think about like the rest of your life when you're 21. You just kind of think about what, what are my, t- like the next two, two years going to look like, or who am I going to be? when I'm 25. Right. Um, so yeah, I ended up coming back and then applied to, to, to get into divinity school. And, um, I did do that. went to Wake Forest and went to Salem. Um, opening experience. I think, um, again, that was probably another formative experience for me, not just the exposure to, um, academic study. Um, but, um, I mean, I was, I was like, I didn't even know that this, uh, that we were allowed to ask the kind of questions that, that people were asking at Wake Forest. Like, this is like, are we being heretical here? Is this, uh, are we going to be put on trial at some point? I would look around in the classroom. Like, I think it's probably the first time I acknowledged how sheltered I was, you know, um, in my journey of faith, like, this was, it was, it was new. There's just all this new stuff, new ways to read scripture and new ways to hear it and um, unanswered, so many unanswered questions. And then you have to learn how to, how to uh, um, remain faithful in your unknowing, you know, which was, that was like a whole new thing for me. I was like, wait, I thought we were, we were chasing after certainty here. Uh-huh. And um So yeah. how, what are some of the questions that felt heretical to you in those moments? So I, let's say, for instance, like, I mean, the, the possibility that, you know, the canon that we hold, right, the, the Bible that we hold um, is not just like 66 different books, but it involves so many other voices, I mean, different yeah authors and and um storytellers and um some get named some don't uh so this was fresh for me the idea that like someone after the fact i know you're probably now i'm thinking back i was like i can't believe i was 20 whatever 24 years old and was just, just being introduced to the possibility like there was that that what I imagined to be the Bible was actually something else almost, you know? So, mm-hmm. and then um, I think I was stunned. I remember the moment when I learned that um, 
Um, yeah, I remember, <laughs> I remember the moment when I learned that um, there is no historical evidence, right, for the escape from Egypt. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. There's none outside. There's no extra biblical record of it, period. Right. And that's this is a foundational narrative for us. I mean, entire theologies are built upon this, right? Yeah. Should we not, you know, but keep looking? Okay. Maybe it's it's somewhere. Is there a library somewhere where there's a there's a script that has been hit us. Just, it baffled me. It took me a while to like, you know, settle my mind around that. Yeah. And so of course the next thing is you have to redefine for yourself um, what the word truth means. You know, it just takes on an entirely different meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're, you're persistently doing it every day, right? You're, I guess that is a, maybe fundamentally the work that we do here is um, defining truth for this day mm-hmm. uh, that is connected to some elemental truths that um, don't depend on us understanding or knowing. Yeah. yeah. So real quick, uh, what did your dad or teach and is he still teaching? No, he's retired now. Uh, he, uh, he was, um, He's an educator, so he taught in the education department. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And did your mom teach? She did. She did a oh. lot of different stuff. No, no. She she worked outside the home. She was in nursing, healthcare, things to keep her busy. You know, so mm-hmm. she did that for a while. She's um, she's great. Just talked to him yesterday. They um, they were at home, and um, my mother is um a. She had a kidney transplant probably seven, almost a little over seven years ago. Mm. So it's still good. The kidney is still good, which is um, every day is a miracle beyond seven years. I think that's the average for people, you know, get kidney transplants. Usually they start failing somewhere around seven years. So you have to get another one, but she's, her health is really good. But the coronavirus stuff is, um, I mean, I, I think about like, oh, I don't want to catch coronavirus, you know? So I think about what I do with my hands and my body and where I put my body, you know? But for her, it's not just, I don't want to catch coronavirus, but she's waking up and like, I don't want to catch, I don't want to die. Right. (laughs) Which is a completely different thing. Like, you know, what should I do with my hand right now? Because I don't want to die. Just like having that, cycling that question through your head every day is, I can't imagine what that's like. Um, but they're doing well. They really are. So uh, they take care of each other in their, in their old age. Good. Yeah. yeah. Are they still in Columbia? They're in uh, Lawrence, South Carolina. Or, okay. Rural part. Mm-hmm. They're still there. Where yeah. Presbyterian is. Okay. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned remaining faithful in our unknowing. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how, you remain faithful in your unknowing personally and how you lead a community to also remain faithful. There is, um, I mean, in times like this, times like the one we're in where our futures feel, feel 
uncertain. I mean, they feel like that. They, they always have been uncertain, but I think we're acutely aware of that uncertainty in a way that um, we were not before. Mm-hmm. Um, the, my, uh, as a leader, uh, I feel there's an inadequacy, right? That is um, apparent, like a feeling of inadequacy that's apparent every single day because there's just not much we can do. Yeah. Um, they're not, there's not a mountain to move, you know, there is, um, and as, as helpful as live streaming and zooming and, um, conference calling has been to keep us connected. It's not the same thing. It just isn't. Um, I mean, and so, I think uh, for me, I'm, I've been fascinated by the limitations that um, have always been there, but I think I'm just bumping up against them and noticing. And they kind of hurt. Huh. Um, and the mistakes that I've made over the last, you know, since early March, I mean, I don't, not been on like mistakes in the normal sense of thing. The times when I've erred is is when I've when I've pressed through those limitations, just out of a necessity to con- like necessity to control to control something and and break through, and I just it was it was a certain recklessness to those moments, right? Where it's like you knew there was nothing you can use nothing you can do, but it was like I just I kind of almost just want to break something so I can fix it because that. The thing that I that I just broke, I'd, I'd like to fix it. It would give me some purpose on this day, right? And at least I can tell people I tried. And maybe I'll have some scars and some wounds to show off. It didn't serve me well. And um, uh, not knowing what comes next, I think, has always been my condition. Um, So remaining faithful with this new truth, it's new to me. I don't think it's new to the universe, but just new to me. Remaining faithful, you know, in this moment uh, requires me, uh, requires that I get comfortable with my own body and um, be self-absorbed because there is nothing else to really get absorbed with. You're just stuck. You're left with yourself as a child of God, just as God created you, you know, I'm so tired of my body, right? These days, it's like, I keep looking at it and I'm noticing things about it because there's nothing else to notice out there. There's no, my attention doesn't get deflected um, by some kind of pursuit. I'm just, I'm stuck in my body all day and like two different rooms that I live in two rooms. I feel like this office and then you know, our apartment is that we live in. So yeah, you're just kind of, you're aware of your clothes, your shoes, your feet, your hands, you see, you see, I'm just seeing myself um, at 40, maybe for really for like the first time, because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. Deeply. I've, mentioned to you earlier we have a nine and a half month old 
And so, and also a, a four and a half year old. And um, the second time around having a child and then this first year, and I knew that I learned this with our first, that like for me, it, it was a full year before I really kind of got reacquainted with the body I was living in. And then now with Liv, uh, it's, it's also been that. And then you add on being in the same space. And yeah. like you said, living in basically two rooms two or, rooms. Um, and, and something about being home and with the same people all the time, every day. So you don't have the variable of seeing a different person in the hallway or a coffee meeting or it, yeah. I, I feel that it's like, there's mm-hmm. this, um, focus that has, and I don't right. love it because I I'm I'm really strive for body neutrality mm-hmm. and all of these things and yet how to oh man being neutral right. <laughs> in a very in a world that tells us we can't be and that everything mm-hmm. has a value judgment mm-hmm. anyway yeah I feel that so yeah. <laughs> intensely um, yeah. very intensely for me it's been helpful of course to have the practice of yoga and meditation Mm -hmm. because that can help clear some of the space sometimes uh, that otherwise gets kind of really noisy. Right. Yeah. 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 So what might you tell us about yourself that we wouldn't find on a website or on paper and maybe that has to do with your vocation? Uh, what do you feel like you're continually being called to uh, do and to be? Um, I'm very, I mean, you wouldn't find it on a website or on paper. I'm, I'm very close to my brothers. They're all younger than me. There's four of us. Mm-hmm. We have grown even closer as we've grown older. Um, we don't talk as often as a lot of uh, siblings might, um, but I am uh, the depth of my love for my brothers. I think is um, I'm, I'm being a, being made aware of that um, as each day passes. So, um, yeah, I don't know what ties us together so well. That's this. I'm exploring this, just wondering. I mean, other than the fact that we're family, but the familial bonds. We'll, you know, those only explain some of it. Um, maybe it's um, I'm watching my kids right now. You know, my son and my daughter, Abraham and Shepard, they're 10 and 8. And I'm watching them. Um, and we're all together now. So I see them all the time. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm watching them play together, watching them fight. And I'm watching them take care of each other. Um, I'm watching they, their interactions are distinctly um, like sibling sibling uh, uh, they describe they can only be described as the way siblings would interact they don't have friends you know and, uh, they're not lovers they are siblings it's just it's and so I think I'm, I'm probably paying attention to to uh, and seeing how within myself, like how much I love my brothers right now. So I miss them deeply, really do. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, you probably wouldn't see that on a website. I mean, how does that relate? Well, let me see. How do I understand my vocation? It's a great question. Um, I'm of the mind that um, uh, I think along with the institution of church, um, the office of the pastor is probably, it's, right now it's, it's being redefined by the times that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, so I, right now, I think part of my vocation is to be a, um, is to be a narrator uh, of, of the transformation that's happening uh, putting words as best I can, putting words on it, translating it for the people that are gathered here, call themselves together, the First Presbyterian Church of Dallas. So that's what I'm, that's my main task right now is just kind of narrating the present as it relates to the future. That's the best I can do. Yeah. So tell us more about your calling to First Presbyterian Church of Dallas, which as I understand it, I've of course, spent a little bit of time in there. Uh, our dear friends uh, were married there. Uh, Chuck and Joan Hudson, uh, when I was probably, I don't know, I think I was 11 or 12. And then uh, spent some time there in 2018 when Chuck died. Uh, so I understand it as a kind of large downtown, predominantly white, big steeple mm -hmm. church. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of Dallas, Texas. Um, mm -hmm. So tell us about your calling there and what that looked like. Why did you come? And what, yeah. has, it, what has it been like in these first, I don't know, year and a half or so? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's probably, there's a, there are other churches, much like First Presbyterian Church of Dallas and other uh, larger cities across the country. Um, uh, we've got, you know, the thing that probably um, is, unique about this one is the um our um ministry to um people that are experiencing homelessness so we've been doing this 45 years now and um it's it's an expansive expansive um undertaking uh the program has expanded uh dramatically even in the last five years so um so that that's here it's called the stew pot and um started with uh meal services you know breakfast, lunch, I think just lunch actually. And um, now we do um, in a regular month, we'll do 1500 meals a day, um, 365 days a year. So we, uh, we're the, we provide all the meals to the homeless transition center, which is right, right up the street from here. We do that. And then there's all kinds of wraparound services as well that we offer to those who are chronically homeless ID services and counseling and casework services and um, art and um, art therapy and clothing, hygiene access. We have two different partners, uh, healthcare partners that are on site here. So large staff that's there. Um, the budget now for uh, Stupot is actually equivalent to the church's like budget. So, which is, I just happened last two years. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, why did I, why did I come? I, it's, and then all the other things you described, uh, for, you know, this is an all white congregation. Um, 
it is uh, 164 years old. Um, I think this church was chartered one day after the city of Dallas uh, was wow. chartered. So it's, this is as old as the city. Uh, we're a block away from what used to be City Hall, um, right in the middle of, middle of downtown Dallas. Um, I, I, the only thing that's really probably uh, worth worth discussing about like me being here is the fact that I never thought I would be at a church like this. I, I, I start, I was, I, I helped to start a, a brand new church in Columbia. Um, so we started from scratch. It was just me and my, my daughter, my son and my, and uh, my spouse, Sarah. So we started that 20, I think 2011. And uh, yeah. And then it kind of just took off. So, mm-hmm. like within two or three years, it had grown. We we had maxed out our capacity for our space and hit our all of our like seven year goals. And so, I was there for probably eight seven years. And so, this is a very different church um, mm-hmm. than this one. So, I dressed like this, which is for Sundays, and just rolling my sleeves. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. here I wear a robe and stoles, and you know all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So what, what compelled you to say yes? I mean, spirit, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, a, this is a special place. I, I could sense it, you know, when I came and visited, um, I had a friend that said, you should really go and talk to this um, pastor nominating committee. And when they called me, I said, you know, yeah, it's, 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 um, I knew it was time to like my work in Columbia had been, was like done. Mm-hmm. I tried to orient my life to um, the natural um, movements of like the earth, right? Of creation. I, I try not to fight creation mm. <laughs> and uh, what, what's happening um, in the world around me. So my season there had ended like it, we'd given, we'd been part of this process that had given birth to a church and had to really the benefit and joy of being there for that. And, you know, it was uh, it, it was growing up, and it was it needed to go and do something else. The church did, and going back to the idea of unknowing, I was right there. I was like, "Oh, I could either I need to leave now, or I'll be here for the rest of my life." It was like one of those two options, and so yeah, that opened up. I mean, you get called to one place, but you also get called out of somewhere else. It's almost like you have to hear both calls at the same time. So. When I got here and visited, I was, um, of course, uh, um, I got energized by what we were doing with um, all of the friends here that are experiencing homelessness and the commitment that the church had made there. And um, and I could sense, you know, in the people like this yearning um, to uh, uh, to explore. Um, and uh, to create and to build new things. And I was like, I'm a builder. That's what I do. And uh, I was also excited by the, you know, I spent eight, seven years, like just raising money, just kind of like a month to month wondering, you know, yeah. or, you know, it wasn't seven years of wondering. The first four years was like, okay, can we pay everybody? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this church is there, there, there are resources here. Yeah. Um, so that, that makes things, uh, it's helpful. Right. And I was like, okay, we can just focus on the building. I don't know. I don't find much virtue in just hustling for dollar bills all the time. You know, as a pastor, I'm like, ah, 
Yeah. Doesn't seem like the best use of my energy. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm yeah. here. You're asked to be like a fundraiser when that was no. not the primary. Yeah. So, <laughs> calling uh, or. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it just saps you of energy. And then, you know, you can end up compromising. You say things, do things to make sure that you've got enough resources. It's just, it's inevitable. You know, it always happens. And uh, it's difficult to be a profit and a fundraiser at the same time. I'll just say that. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, I was curious about how you understand uh, in this particular congregation, your role as pastor, prophet, and priest. Uh, to use those three kind of of definitions and labels. Um, Mm -hmm. And and in particular, this time of COVID, this time of the, I think, reawakening to white supremacy and how it Mm -hmm. kills all of us. Um, And of course, I've come to know you through our dear friend, Joan, forwarding Mm -hmm. your letters to the congregation Mm -hmm. uh, since May 30th, uh, which is when, peaceful protests uh, began across the country uh, at just the outrage uh, mm-hmm. at the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I think in a minute, I want to read just a couple of uh, parts of those letters, but mm-hmm. yeah, let's go back to that. Like prophet, pastor, and priest. Yeah. How, do you under- how do you understand those? I think uh, uh, presently, right now, I'm, I'm I'm trying my best to understand. I am. I'm working very hard. I mean, I'm as a as a as a I'm a black male. That's leading an all white congregation, and um, you know, for many years, I worked hard to just be a pastor, right? To be an effective and faithful pastor, and um and prophet and priest. Um, and, uh, um, now I think, um, it is, uh, I, I can't escape, um, the skin that I live in, the body that I'm in, as we talked about earlier. Um, so I'm learning myself right now what it means to be a black male pastor in the Presbyterian denomination, right? To be at a church like this one. But I mean, I'm learning out loud, right? Like there's no like going back into some room and, and like working it out and then coming back out and be like, okay, we got it together. I'm yeah. spend some time in study and reflection. I mean, Sundays keep coming. Things keep happening. Um, the congregation needs a pastor. And, you know, I'm, I wasn't called here to a movement or an idea. I was called here to people, real people with bodies themselves, you know? And um, as much, I think, a mistake that we make sometimes as pastors is trying to be a pastor to people who aren't here yet, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm committed to... Um, you know, in all of our imperfection and vulnerability as a community here, I'm, we, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor to the people that are here. So yeah. that's, um, so, yeah. Yeah. So can I read a couple mm-hmm. of parts uh, of your letter? Um, so, yeah. 
So the first one is from the letter on May 30th uh, that, you, that was sort of uh, addressing and responding uh, to the congregation after the church property uh, mm -hmm. was damaged uh, because yeah. of, of protests um, in downtown Dallas. So the peaceful voices we hear outside the church house this weekend belong to people that look like me. Mm. Black men and women that want to exist in this country without constantly looking over our shoulder, worried that today we might die from being too black at the wrong time. Mm. Racism kills people. Only recently have we been able to gather enough video evidence to make that fact irrefutable. And then from your June 6th letter to the congregation, you say, I'm proud to be the first black pastor of the first Presbyterian church of Dallas, mm. but not because I was first. I'm proud because I get to serve a church that went first. Mm. Nonetheless, my presence here doesn't excuse us from the hard work of reconciliation. Mm official statements of support and solidarity with the struggle for justice on behalf of black people is not enough. That sermon has already been preached and the church of Jesus Christ nodded its head in approval. Mm -hmm. Nobody I know is for racism, but many of us are just figuring out that our silence enabled it to flourish. So, I'm curious how your church responded to these letters, um, what that has looked like and felt like. And I'm curious what it was like for you to write and communicate these. Uh, I am struck by your writing. I am a writer and I'm curious if you understand uh, writing as, as part of your identity in the world. And that's sort of a tangent, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, tell us more about what it looks like uh, to sit down and, and write and communicate with your congregation after mm -hmm. May 30th and then on June 6th. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this time of COVID. Um, you're distanced from the people, so you, you, don't, you don't get all the feedback that you normally would um, in between worship services or after after a service you just don't so i i mean claire i'll be honest with you i i mean i'm still here so um <laughs> um I, I the feedback that i did receive um i think the people were grateful for hearing from me acknowledging like why my voice might be like distinct you know um, I needed to say that out loud for myself. Because again, I, like I said earlier, I've been working so hard to just be an effective, faithful pastor, not a black pastor. I had to claim that part of my identity. In, like, in between those two letters, some serious like, soul work had to happen for me. Um, and that was the week, I believe. It was like Saturday to Saturday between those two letters. So, um, I am... Um, at the same time, I think um, I think right now we're settling into a reality. Like the, the, this uh, 
we're settling into this new reality that this is going to take so like so much work you know it's going to take so much work um and that's that's what frightened me. I think you'll hear that in in the second letter that you that you just read. That that's what scared me the most personally was like I you know I can we can start this journey together and I'll go with you, but I'm black, and you're white. You can quit this at any time when it gets hard, you know, or it's uncomfortable. I mean, you can you can opt out. Like this is my life. This is what I do every day, twenty-four hours a day. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that's probably what you. Um, that was um, that was, but a lot. That, that second letter was infused, I think, with that sentiment. Um, I work out my thoughts on paper. I think um, so. I don't like um, writing requires that you ship something. Like you actually have to let go of it and put it out there. Oh. And um, I'm a constant tinkerer, right? I like to improve things as they go along. And so that's probably what I dislike most about writing is that you have to let these things go. Mm. <laughs> and and uh, people often ask me for my manuscripts, you know, when I'm preaching, I'm like, no, no chance, not happening. You know, you can listen. Right. <laughs> but, Interesting. Yeah. 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 I don't when, you know, but I probably, I, the first draft of all my manuscripts probably reads better than it preaches. I'll get, I get around to fixing it, fixing it right. But yeah, but I work it out there um, on the paper and um, um, I, you know, I'm not, naive in the sense that not everybody here at, at FPC Dallas is, is um, eager uh, to engage in this, in this effort to uh, dismantle structural systemic racism. Not just that, there's some who don't even think it exists. Like it's, it's a problem worth our energy or effort. Mm-hmm. Or Tom. So I don't know when it's going to come, but uh, yeah. I told a friend, you know, uh, it was a colleague um, at a church that's, you know, about the same size as this one somewhere else in the country. We were talking about engaging, you know, our congregations in, in this, uh, this steady work. And we both admitted that, like, for the first time ever in our our uh, careers that we were not certain that like 18 months from now, you know, we would still be a part of the communities we were in. Mm-hmm. Not because we were like leaving to go somewhere else, but because like we didn't know, we just, we were that going back to the idea of unknowing, putting this adaptive work that must be done giving it back to the people and saying, we can't do this for you. We have either we do this together or not at all. Yeah, right. But there is no, you know, edict that we can, there was sessions going to put out a statement here in the next week or so, but this is soul work on the most fundamental level. I mean, it is for each one of us. Yeah. And now we know that, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible to 
faithfully follow the way of Jesus Christ without doing this work first. That's right. Yeah, it's not, I mean, this is not optional, right? you know? Yeah. And this is a lot of what we are working on in the academy is sort of how do you train the muscle <laughs> to be able to hang with something long enough that you'll actually see the change. You'll actually transform. I mean, not only personally, but communally, collectively. And how do we work together to be able to hold paradox and nuance and intersectionality and discomfort, pain, um, in a world that tells us to run really far from all of those things. And, and by us, those of us who have a, a choice as white identifying people, um, to run far from it. And yeah, I, in a conversation with another Academy podcast guest, um, when I, I asked him about, you know, how do we sort of handle the overwhelm, um, he just said, well, overwhelm is a tool of white supremacy. White supremacy wants us to be tired, wants us to be overwhelmed, wants us to be exhausted so that we check out. And I have felt this many times in my life in the work of justice of going, you know, I just can't do it all because right. If it becomes this huge thing, then yeah, I'm going to go lie down and take a nap. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm with you just sort of in that sense of uh, being committed to something for a really long time. Really long. And um, finding the ways to stay with that. Um, yeah. Because that, and I will admit, like as a white person, I, yeah, you're right. I can check out anytime. Um, my life literally doesn't depend on it. Um, and I'm learning every day that it does. Like, it does. And it is, it is big and it is heavy and like, it's liberating. (laughs) I mean, I can feel myself breathing more deeply the more I breathe with you. Right. So anyway, you have two children, uh, Abraham and Shepard, um, I love their names and I would love to hear about how um, you and your wife, Sarah named them and came to that. um, And what parenting looks like for you and for Sarah right now uh, in this particular time. Yeah. The, uh, their names, Abraham, Abraham is named after Abraham. So Abraham was a, 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 like a uncle, um, to me and my brothers uh, he came from ethiopia after we did and he uh he lived here in the states for a while and got grew very close to our family um and uh, went back to ethiopia um to take care of his father who was dying and take care of his family back there so he left um 
you know, the land of milk and honey here to go back to a very remote village in, in Ethiopia. I've, I've just always been his loyalty and dedication and commitment and, and self-sacrifice in making that choice to leave here and go back. I don't know if it was a choice for him. I think his, um, his soul had already been programmed um, to, uh, to respond whenever he got the call, which to me is just this beautiful, it's beautiful. I, I don't know. It's just beautiful to think about this. So I named my son after, after Abraham. Um, uh, his middle name is German, which is my father's first name. All the Desasas, the, 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 uh, me and my brothers, we, we all have, we all carry our father's middle name. Um, our father's name is our middle name. Uh, and then Shepherd, uh, Shepherd is, um, uh, the, uh, last name of, um, someone that was very close to my wife, Sarah's family. So mm. Golda Shepherd, Golda Shepherd. And, uh, Golda Shepherd lived across the street from, from Sarah's family in West Virginia. And, mm. um, so, and then Shepherd's middle name is Temple. And, uh, Lynn Temple Jones was, uh, Sarah's grandfather. He was a Presbyterian pastor. And, mm. I, and you know it's if it's kind of sing-songy you know shepherd temple you know so mm, i love it yeah yeah so i was like this is a real dignified name we should go with that you know mm. so parenting in this time is um it's been incredibly difficult um not physically but just emotionally i think it's been hard i don't know if it's been I, sarah is my is a saint i mean she's like she's a I don't think she has human qualities. Like she has zero human qualities. She's, <laughs> she's, she's like the personification of like the spirit it's just mm. in bodily form. So she is, she takes everything in stride and she's great. She's great. Um, I mean, uh, my son is, I was just looking at him the other day. He's grown considerably. I feel like in the last four months, he's already big. He's a tall, big, just athletic kid. He got, all the big stuff. Yeah. We can't keep food in the house. He's 10. I looked at him the other day. And I was like, he's going to be so big. Yeah. And I wanted him not to be so big because I didn't want him to like, I, I just knew his size would be a threat to people. I wanted to just shrink him up a little bit to protect him. Um, because his body would be a threat to others in public and where, wherever. And so, yeah, I just, I, I sensed this, this, there was this moment of pride, like, oh my, it's going to be so much fun, like playing ball with him. And, and also, Lord, it's like this prayer, don't make him too big. Hmm. That's, that's what racism does to us. <laughs> yeah. It makes us um, utter and um, lift up these like, strange prayers. Yeah. So um, they're asking a lot of questions, and and we're we're talking now about things that we. Um, had been putting off. Um, yeah, we live right downtown, so 
when the protests and riots were going, going riots at night here, protests during the day. I mean, they were there. They heard all the tear gas and the rubber bullets being shot, the broken glass everywhere the next morning. And um, so I don't think we'll ever, May 30th, that night. And I told him, never forget it. You'll never forget this night. That was a Saturday night, first weekend. And it was, it was a long night. Um, my daughter asked after, um, she saw, she walked by one of the, as they were walking home from church, they had delivered something to me that I needed. Oh, like my clothes. Cause I had to, um, rewrite my sermon and retape it that, that Sunday. They brought clothes here uh, for me to change into. And then they were walking back. This is like three o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, one of the larger protests came down the street, very peaceful. And they were wearing, I mean, they had signs up and, um, so Shepard, who's eight, um, we had talked to her about the desegregation of schools. We explained to her what all that was, um, about a month before this, when she sees the signs and the people, she looks at my wife, Sarah, and she says, Sarah, she says, mom, does this mean, that we're all going to have to start drinking at separate water fountains again. Wow. Yeah. So the, the un, you know, the unrest and uncertainty about what comes next was very vivid and real for her. As an, and, and I think while her question was not, um, her question was easy to answer. The what triggered that question, I think, was um, is something I've thought about frequently. What exactly triggered that? So I think it was a very primal and childlike um, response to that moment because you sensed, as we all did as adults, like. Ooh, we don't know what's coming next. Mm-hmm. What comes next? And she, I think, wanted to um, be confident. Uh, and she would be okay with the response, even if it was, yes, we're going back to drinking from separate water fountains. What she didn't want was her own water fountain or to share one with someone else. What she really wanted was some confidence that somebody around here knew what was going to happen next. Right. Not give her. Just say, no, we're not going to go back drinking from separate water fountains. Um, But um, there's a reason why you are witnessing people that are angry right now. Why are we angry? So anyway, that's what it's like raising, yeah, raising uh, biracial children right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, my uh, almost five-year-old, his name is Wade, and yesterday um, there's this, you know, old nursery rhyme that he learned, and it's, you know, the eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And they've changed it to catch a tiger, 
by its toe. And of course that has, um, that is not the way it originated and the way it was told. And um, that's how he, right, has learned to like, okay, mommy's going to go first or daddy's going to go first or Wade's going to go first, like in whatever game. And yesterday I just became kind of very intense uh and i just said absolutely not like this is no like we mm-hmm. no we know that this is wrong and we're not doing it anymore but that's what I, I mean right and so he starts kind of raging and saying like that's this is what i know this is what i want and i just I looked at him and i said wade no like it's not okay we're gonna do rock paper scissors or whatever else we we are creative and we can come up with something different like absolutely not world peace begins at home and if like we let this one go like absolutely not i mean i just became a hard ass like and i'm a hard ass in general i mean that's just kind of how i'm made up but it, it was just this moment where i thought on the one hand right that's the choice that so many of us as white folk can make to just like oh, let that one go. It's just in my house. Not a huge deal. Um, Or again, getting overwhelmed with, I don't know what to say or what to do or how to pivot. Um, And yeah, it was just absolutely not. And I'm, I have a a partner who is 1000% in this with me. And so (laughs) that helps immensely Mm -hmm. uh, to be both equally dedicated uh, to anti-racism in this work. But um, yeah, I just, I share that just to say like, as a white person, this is what the work of anti-racism looks like for us. Um, And so I don't necessarily have to pray that Wade doesn't um, get too big and become a threat because he comes in a white male body. Um, But I have to pray that actually he would understand in some ways how to be small, Um, the, the, how to truly be humble, how to, how to listen and learn and and shift and, and follow people that don't look like him. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's all a lot for all of us, and I, and I believe, like we just we make the way by walking. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't. Um, I as a pastor, you know, I'm also I'm looking around. I'm just like I we we're not slowing down at all to acknowledge to each other, I think how sad all of us are. Oh, and, yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I don't know what to do with that right now, but I, I, that reminds me of like at times of death, you know, the families. Um, that surround, you know, the deceased will, that first three, four days, there'll be the shock of death. And then it's like, okay, let's get plans together. 
and then they'll plan things. We'll plan things, the service and the reception and greeting afterwards and people flying in and going out. And we're just, you know, we're doing the work of burying someone. And then afterwards, you know, the grief is still, the sadness does not go. I, I just don't know what are we grieving like what sadness, what death are we grieving right now? Because we are sad. I'm sad. Um, angry and sad, it's, but just sad. Yeah. I don't know what, what am I, what, what, what thing did we lose that we, that we actually wanted to remain is like, that's my question. You know, like, what is it that we're going to miss or Yeah, I don't know. Do you have any idea? <laughs> Friday, about, I don't know, one o'clock or so, I just was done. Uh, I couldn't do one more email, one more anything. Uh, not to mention parenting and, I mean, <laughs> or one more unloading of the dishwasher. My God, like. Yeah. Being in the house all the time, we do the dishes yeah. all the time. Unstop. Yeah. <laughs> it just never ends. Um, and so, and had received news that the that on Friday morning that the Tennessee legislature, in kind of a very late night covert kind of thing, um, passed an abortion ban law. I, I heard about that. Uh, that I mean makes. It's just atrocious on every level, and um, my my body couldn't take it anymore. And I just laid down and I cried. Um, and I I don't just like I am a an emotional person, and it doesn't always sort of manifest in tears. And that's a lot of just my own control of sort of saying, okay, I don't have time for this right now. I gotta, you know, keep doing all the other things. And it was like, I couldn't control it. And I just let myself weep. And um, God bless my husband who just laid down beside me and crying is not really his thing either. (laughs) And yet he just laid there and we just cried in our own ways Mm. together. Mm. Um. And I think for someone like me uh, and like, like I would guess like you um, who see sort of how it all intersects, right? Like who is this abortion ban going to hurt the most women of color, like poor women of color. And, and just, it's like sometimes this just like, it's like this web and it just like all comes together, but it's like so tight. It's like, how do you even start to like unravel it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that is then what the overwhelm can kind of set in or the, the checking out. And, and I just, I don't know. So I just laid here. So, and that, so the sadness for me was just so like, because you look at the picture and it's white men. It's just white men. Like old white dudes just in suits who just legislated like my body and like the bodies of 
so many people. And, and then I thought, you know, and then me, I'm like, if you actually had policies that cared about the kids, the children that come into the world, then like, maybe I could, maybe, but just, there's just like this utter like disregard for, mm. for the humanity of, of people. And that anyway, just lay down and cried. And, mm. and so I, it was actually the tears ended up being kind of how I understand them as a baptism. And it was, you know, it was like, I, I baptized myself into, Mm -hmm. into new life. And I was able after kind of lying in that pool um, to get up and play with my kids and um, kind of go into the weekend a little less entangled Mm. um, so that then I can show up here and here, here we are Monday morning, right. To, to re-engage, reinvigorate. Mm. Um, So, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's all of it. And I think, um, the cosmos, right? The universe, you, you talked about the universe, you talked about the creation and, mm-hmm. and seasons. Uh, they have, have been aware of this for a long time. <laughs> um, and I think we, all of us on d- in different levels and in different ways are waking up and, and sometimes waking up is, is, is painful. Yeah. Um, and with pain is sadness and, and with pain is, is our ability to know joy. So, um, yeah, I'm of course mindful of our time and, um, appreciate on just a really uh, deep level, your uh, willingness to show course, up and, yes, and, yes. and to talk and to be honest and real with me and with us. Um, and I guess just before um, we close, I would love just in a few words to hear from you, what liberation looks like to you. I don't, Claire, I don't know. I don't think we've ever been liberated. Um, liberated enough to have any idea what may come um, when we witness the reign of God. I don't think we know. But it's complete. I do know that. Like it's whole. Nothing's missing. Yeah. And that brings us full circle to the remaining faithful hmm. in the unknowing. In the unknowing, yeah. Yeah. Now is not the... These days I'm increasingly skeptical of anybody who tries to tell me they know what's going on or they have the answers or they have four, six, 12 steps, or this is what we should do next. So I, we certainly need encouragement 
and some momentum in particular directions. But if experts or preachers or um, wisdom teachers or rabbis, imams, uh, regular anybody, if anybody does not hedge whatever it is they're about to say with, I'm just guessing here, or (laughs) I hope I'm right, or, you know, if we don't acknowledge at this point, like if we have not seen enough to acknowledge each of us personally, how much we never knew, we've learned nothing. We'll make the same mistakes again. Well, I always ask guests to offer us a story, a blessing, a scripture, a poem, something as we close. And I just wonder if you might have anything to share with us as we end today. The reading from John 21, um, verses um, 17 and forward. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. My prayer is that we find we find hope in that. We need help. We need help. Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy resources page at academy.upperroom.org backslash resources. And if you have questions about the work of anti-racism or about this particular podcast episode, please email us at academy at upperroom.org. The work of love and justice begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches, dances, listens, learns, and sings along with us. Thanks for being a part of this life-changing work. We're grateful you're here, and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul.